God, we, um, we come to you today um, hoping. Maybe we're all hoping for different things, but um, I think we're all hoping to be in your presence. Hoping that you'll, that you'll nudge us, that you'll shape us a little bit, that you'll inspire us, and that we leave with something from you. That, that's my prayer for me. And I think it's a lot of our prayers. So God, we ask you to do those things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're starting this brand new series called Extreme Influence. So let's just make sure we're all on the same page about, about what influence is. The dictionary tells us it's the capacity to have an effect on the character, the development, or behavior of, of someone else. Right? So when we're, we're familiar with this. It really means that our lives, lives rub against each other and we influence each other. And um, I, so I started thinking, we all, we all understand that our character gets influenced, our behavior gets influenced. So here's the question I have for you. Who has been a great influence in your life? I want you to think of a, a, at least two people, maybe three. You go, these, these are the people who have really, really influenced me. Give me a second to think about that. Okay? Well, let me ask you a question to follow up. Whom would you like to influence? Can you think of some specific people that you go, I would love to influence these people? I'd like my life to interact with them in a way that they, they pick something up, that their lives are encouraged and reshaped in some way. Now, my, my guess is those weren't hard questions. You have someone that you think, oh, I would love to influence and help shape, and, and you can think back in your own life and go, oh, that person, right? If you asked me that question, I would say, my parents. My parents were incredible influence in my life. Of course they were. My, my brothers were, not necessarily positively, but they were a tremendous influence in my life, you know? And my, my grandfather and my grandmother, spiritually speaking, were these incredible influences, influencers in my, in my life. My friends, I've had friends. And then different people along the life journey have come in and spoken and helped shape some of the things. And, and I think they would be gratified to know. One of the exercises we used to do is say, to say thank you. Send a thank you note to someone who you go, you've been an influence in my life. I really appreciate it. I didn't want you to know that you were. Because I think it's human nature to want to influence someone. I think it's, it's human nature to, to want to make a difference, to want to contribute to the world and to influence others, to be significant in other people's lives and help shape other people's lives together. And I think it's, 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 I think it's true for everybody, but I think it's especially true for followers of Jesus. And the reason I say that is, is that um, I have this... this inner conviction that God wants that for us because he's shaped us that way and made us that way and he tells us things. Let me just take you to your own world for a moment though. I think we have all have spheres of influence, right? My guess is that as you look at your life, you go, yeah, I have people who are closest to me. We'll call them family. And then outside of that, there's a sphere of friends. And outside of that, there's a sphere of other people who I know, but I wouldn't say we're friends. And then there's people I don't even know. Some of them live in Rochester and some of them live all, all around the world. I don't know a lot of people right? And then there's another group of people in, out in all the world, or maybe in Rochester, and hopefully not in your home, who we would say they're, they're enemies, right? Most people forget those people, but, but they're out, out, there, out there as well. So my conviction here is that Jesus is saying, I want you, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
to influence your spheres of influence in your life at every level. By the way, how many of you said, you know, you, you thought of the person who you want to influence. How many of you go, it was a family member in, in, in your mind? Yeah, right. The whole whole bunch of us. That, that's the, If you're a parent, that's probably the first thing that came to your mind. Yes, I don't want to influence them. I want to control them. It's the... And I want you to know there's a big difference between control and force and influence. Influence is something that the person chooses. Maybe not, maybe not an out loud conscious thought, but they, they, they choose to, to do that, right? I mean, between my parents, my, my mom was the emoter, and my dad was Mr. Spock, right? I mean, just nothing. And he's intellectual, a little stoic kind of guy. And he's, he's gotten old, he's lost some of that, but... but that's how I viewed them. And I looked at the two of them and I thought my mom was completely irrational. And I thought my, my father was void of any human emotions whatsoever. Right? And this is the home I grew up in. And, I, and, and the influence was not that they knew it. But I intentionally said, I want the best of what my mom has, but I don't want to be irrational. Right? I want to the best of what my dad has. And I don't know how I've done with it, but I, I want to combine, I want to embrace the emotions and I want to embrace the reason. And, 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 but I remember actually thinking that as a, as a, I know I was a strange kid. So, but, but they influenced me. And, and we have friends who have influenced us. And I'm telling you that Jesus says to his followers, I want you to be influencers of this world. He put it almost in a mission format, right? You remember Matthew 28, 19, he says this to his disciples, therefore go and make disciples. Pause there. Go and influence the world. You can't force discipleship. You can't force, you must follow Jesus. It doesn't work. You must worship God. You can't change somebody's heart from the outside in. But we can influence and they can, they can choose it. So go and make disciples of all nations. That means just everybody. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You don't baptize people against their will. You, it's something they choose to do. It's something that, that comes to them. Another place that Jesus talks about this influence, and in, in really in the circle format, he, Acts 1.8, he told his followers, and you will be my witnesses, my influencers. You're, that's what witness was. You're, you're my influencers. Telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem and ju- throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right? And so we put it into our spheres of influence. He was saying, hey guys, you, you live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's first. And then the outer region of that is Judea. And then geographically speaking, we've got Samaria, right, where we just heard that woman was from. And then we have the Gentiles who actually lived through the whole thing, but now we're looking at it not geographically, but more from a, a worship or a, a religious circle or a lack of religious circle. There's anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. Gentiles. And then I think Jesus would have said, and don't forget your enemies. Right? It's, it's everybody. You start with the closest people and, 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 and you move out. And the reason I am so convinced that Jesus would say, don't forget your enemies, is because he brought them up in his teaching. When he gave that famous message, that, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking about, you've heard it said. He was talking about the law, and, and here's the law. And then he would expound upon it. And he'd say, but I say. And he talked about lots of different topics. But I wanted to show you one of them, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. He said, you've heard the law that says, your neighbor, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Pause for a moment. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. That was someone's interpretation. Yes, of course, love your neighbor, love others, right? But they, they added and hate your enemies. But it sounds good. It kind of sounds eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? If they hate you, you hate them. So love your neighbors and, and hate your enemies. But Jesus goes, but I say, love your enemies. 
pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. When you love your enemies, you're acting like your true Father in heaven. So this week, anyway, I was kind of browsing around. This will be maybe a deviation here. And I came across this really strange contest that people had this year. They had to send in pictures. And I'm going to show you some of the pictures, and you try to tell me what the contest is. Okay, a little game. <clears throat> I know you like games. So here's the first picture while I get a drink. You look at that. <clears throat> Anybody have an idea what the contest was? Whoa, that is very sharp. You should have saved it for a little while, but good answer, okay? You ruined the game. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a competition to see father, son, lookalikes, right? So, so you look at those guys and you go, yeah, I feel sorry for both of them. And then these guys, and I just feel sorry for the son, <laughs> right? And these guys, who is who, right? It's like that, I, they probably won. I'm just guessing. My favorite one. <laughs> All right, you look at that. Even the dad's hands look like little kids' hands just growing up, right? <laughs> look like baby hands. It also, it's like me, mini me. There you go, right, right there, right? Now, the reason I show you that is because of what Jesus said. He said, I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. You know what he's saying? The greater we love, the more we look like Dad. The greater we love. Man, when we can love our enemies, that's, that's like a God thing. That's like our Father in heaven who loves everybody. Christ came to die for everybody. Right? So we don't, we don't get to opt out. As we follow Jesus, if we're interested in following Jesus, we don't get to opt out on this, on this whole love thing. In fact, I'm going to say, as we look through this, this series on be, extreme influence, becoming influencers, the starting place for influence is love. Without, without love, give it up. Without love, please don't influence anybody else. Don't try to influence other people. Now, why is that true? Why is the starting place for influence love? And I think it's because of something I learned when, when I was in student ministries. It's this. It's that people accept and reject each other at an emotional level. So I spent eight years as a, as a youth pastor, a lot longer actually, but one church, eight years. And one of the things that someone told me early on in, in ministry formation for me as a, as a pastor was, hey, Doug, you need to know something. Um, when people come to you and go, hey, I want to help out with student ministries, and, and you go, well, what do you want? Well, I just really want to fix that generation. I want to influence those kids. They're in trouble, and, and I'm here to rescue them. He said, that's the wrong answer. Go, well, that sounds good to me. You know, I mean, I'm in this deal to, to change. I'm worried about their futures. I'm all those things. He goes, no. He goes, he goes you got to ask them a more fundamental question. I go, what is it? And he goes, ask them if they love teenagers. Do they love teenagers who don't change? Do they love teenagers who are in rebellion? Do they love teenagers because they're people and they count? Do they love being with them? Do they love their energy? Do they, do they love them? Right? Because if they're coming in to fix them, kids can smell that out 100 miles away because people accept and reject at an emotional level. If they come in and they love the kids, the kids will almost naturally love them. They accept and reject. And, and whatever comes out of their mouth, that's going to be irrelevant. 
What's going to be relevant is the fundamental, do they love them? By the way, isn't that true? Some of us have terrible mothers. Do you know that? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to name names here, but some of us have terrible mothers. But we love them because even though they were not the greatest moms in the whole world, we know they loved us and we loved them. People accept and reject at an emotional level. By the way, this is great news for, for, for you if you're in middle school or high school or you're, you're dating that kind of age because when, when Susie tells her friend Mary that you, Bobby, like her and love her, you know, you're, not love, you wouldn't use that word, but you like her. Hey, Mary, Bobby likes you. No, Mary's never even thought about you, Bobby, ever. Right? But now she knows that you liked her first. So she's like, Wow, let me see here. You know, I kind of like, and she doesn't even know she's doing it. She starts to, because, because when you go first with love, then people respond because it opens up their heart, their life, right? Given all that now, now we're ready to, to look at what happened that day when Jesus talked to this woman at the well. It's recorded in John 4. We'll just read through the passage and we'll talk about how this interacts with love and, and influence. So here's what it says. Verse 1, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Why does, why does John tell us that? Because Jesus' popularity is growing. This is making the Pharisees nervous. And it's getting a little bit more dangerous around Jerusalem and Judea. And so John slips in this comment. He says, though Jesus himself, excuse me, didn't baptize them, his disciples did. Which, I don't know why he put that in there, but it's kind of strange because I never pictured Jesus and the disciples out there doing things with baptism. I always think of John the Baptist doing baptism. I never think of the disciples doing baptism. And, and it's just kind of interesting. I wish I knew what the, how they did that and what they were saying to people. Because I know John the Baptist's message, but I don't know exactly what Jesus said or why his disciples baptized. So, verse 3. So he left Judea, that region, and returned to Galilee, more remote area. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. By the way, if you're going to, to Israel with us, and the, we got, I know 35 of us are going, we may get the opportunity to actually see this well, or what they say is this. You never know when you're there. Is it the actual one, or is it one that they're making some money off of saying it is the actual one? But anyway, we're going to see a well <laughs> there, and it's called Jacob's Well. Uh, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily be- beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. Right? For he was alone at the time, because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. All right, let's pause the story there for a moment. So there is a tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. When I use the word tension, it's probably understating. You know, there's a there's a, we don't want anything to do with you. You are, you're dirt compared to us. And the Jews were the ones who were the arrogant. They were God's chosen people. And somehow in the past, there'd become this division between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jew, Samaritans were more like a half Jewish, which is the worst possible scenario. Um, and so when Jesus turns to the woman and says, would you give me a drink of water? It's hard for us to, maybe to embrace exactly that what was going on. And I'm going to give you an analogy from our world, right, that, it's the best I can come up with. I don't think it's perfect, but it's the best I can come up with. So to the woman, having Jesus ask for a glass of water as a Jew to a Samaritan might be like a black person being asked for a sip of water from her canteen by a member of the KKK. Right? I want you to feel the emotions of it. Can you imagine that? 
uh, you're a black person and you know this person's a member of the KKK, a white supremacist, and they want to sip from your canteen of water? Right? So she's, that would probably shock you, right? So the woman was surprised. For the Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, well, if you only knew the gift that God has for you, has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Which sounds really strange to us. Living, You give me living water. But to her, I don't know that it sounded quite so strange. right? Because in the Jewish mind and the Samaritan mind of the day, when they talked about water, there was dead water and there was living water. Dead water is the water that I wouldn't drink on a canoe trip. When you were going canoeing, and we would drink right out of the lake. This is back when you could, right? Right out of the water, you'd put your cup in, you put it up. You, you, it's in Canada before the United States has um, polluted it. And... Uh, and we drink right out, just drink it because you're thirsty, 10, 13 years old, right? And, and, but if I was in still water like this, so Jews would call that dead water. It's still, it's stagnant. You know, this is where beavers live, right? And I butchered the name of it last night, so then somebody says, here's what it's called, Doug. G-R-Daria, right? Okay, so I don't know if I even still have said it right, but someone says, just say beaver fever, right? And it's a disease you can get if you drink water where, where this parasite is located, right? And the stiller the water, the more it is. I would love to drink water straight from waterfalls. I go, for some reason, I just knew intuitively, this is okay water to drink. It tastes better as well. But you don't drink from dead water, right? Now, in Samaria, in Sikkur, there, were no, there wasn't any living water. There were no streams running through it. There was no rivers, they had dug a well, and, and it was a cistern where water would be held or a little groundwater would come in. And, of course, from our perspective, that's always suspect, right? But, but that's where they got their water from. And Jesus comes and saying, hey, I have living water from you. So she didn't understand it right away because she's going, living water? So she says, but, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this? living water. We're in Sikkor. There's not a there's not a stream or a spring anywhere around here. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, "Look, anyone who drinks this water will soon be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again." It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. It's kind of like a, a, a river that doesn't never goes dry, right? It's living water, and you can drink it, and it fills you, and it satisfies you. And that's going to be right inside of you. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I won't have to be thirsty again, and I, I won't have to come here to get my water. So, so she kind of reminds me of ninth grade geometry class. She's missing everything, Right? <laughs> She's not understanding. This is what the only class I ever got a D in my life was ninth grade geometry. Um, there's a part of me that wants to retake it just to see if I could, but then I'm afraid I can't, so I'm not going to. All right, so she's just missing it. So Jesus goes, you know what? We need a different approach to this. She goes, hey, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You're right. You don't have a husband, for you had five husbands. And you're not even married to the man you're living with now. 
Right? You certainly spoke the truth. Now, pause for a moment. I have to just, because some of us grew up in churches where this has been taught in very harsh ways. Pastors have made this woman into a four-letter word that implies she's sleeping around with a lot of different people. We don't know that. What we know is she had a hard life. What we know is anybody who's been married five times has five times the pain and loss. And she's living with someone. We don't know the circumstances for that. I'm, I'm not saying she wasn't, you know, sinful. But I'm saying the only person who wasn't sinful was Jesus anywhere, anytime. We're all there. So I don't, I don't read the condemnation in that some people have thrown upon her. That's one of the things I liked about the drama. In fact, I think Jesus really was just giving the facts. He goes, hey, I know you. I know your life. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. Right? Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Because you know what? You know it. She didn't run away. She didn't go stop attacking me. She said, you must be a prophet. Because he just gave her the facts. So, changing the topic, because it might be a little uncomfortable that he knows everything. Right? Why is it that you Jews, now we're going to religion, insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim? where our ancestors worshipped, right? So this is very similar to someone coming in and, and saying, you know, Doug, I grew up in a church where we used real wine at communion. And you guys use what? Sugar water, Kool-Aid, grape juice. Oh, yeah, oh, okay, grape juice, right? And why is that? Why did our ancestors do this, but your church does that? Or why did my church sprinkle and your church dunks? Or, or why did you read from this version of the Bible and we read from that version of the Bible? I mean, there's a thousand things and, and they come up. And By the way, churches are split over this kind of stuff. That's it. We're done. You go meet over there. You're sprinklers and we're dunkers and we're not going to be together anymore. We follow Jesus. Yes, that's true, but we can't get along, can we? Right? Over these kinds of things. So that's what the kind of questions she's asking. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman. The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. By the way, could that be said of almost every argument the churches have between each other? Come on, there's a time and it's now when it no longer matters. There's something bigger at stake, our unity, our love for each other, right? Whether you worship here in Jerusalem, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the, through the Jews. He's not denying that the Jews are the chosen people. He's not denying the Jews have an advantage. The Messiah is coming, it's him, through the Jewish lineage, right? But he is saying there's a time when whether you're born a Jew or a Samaritan or anything else isn't going to matter anymore. And he says that right now. He says, but the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Right? Not, not through temple location or worship location or which songs or what kind of music you sing. In spirit and in truth. And he goes on, he says, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Who will worship him beyond religion and worship him in truth and in spirit. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And the most amazing thing about that is I think he told her this before any of the disciples knew who he was. I think she was the first person. He goes, hey, let me tell you something nobody knows. I'm the Messiah. 
not a Jewish person, but a Samaritan woman. What I haven't told you yet is I told you where the, 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 the Samaritans rank, and the only thing worse would be a Samaritan woman, right? Because in Jewish culture and Samaritan culture in the Middle East, women are suppressed. They were then, and in many ways we know they, they are now, right? So he's talking to her. That's a miracle in and of itself. Just then, the disciples came back. You couldn't have written the script any better, right? Okay, enter disciples. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, right? Not doesn't say a Samaritan at this point, but a woman. A Samaritan woman is twice as, twice, but none of them had the nerve, right, to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? Right? So you ever know that's just the wrong question to ask? My dad was that way. There's times where, you know, I want to ask this question, but if I ask it, I get the feeling I'm going to get really reamed out on a lecture here. I think I'll pass on the, on the, on the question. There's just that holy fear kind of moment. And they go, well, I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. Nope, I'm not asking him. So the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Right? By the way, if she was feeling condemnation and judged by Jesus... I don't think she runs back to the, to the village going, come and meet this guy. This guy's awesome. He's wonderful. He told me everything he did. I don't think it was, he, he told me how horrible person I was. He didn't, no. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Then, we're going to skip the next eight verses, but I encourage you to go home and read them because I just like skipping verses so you'll have motivation to go home and read it. But in verses 31 through 38, Jesus has a side conversation with his disciples about food and doing God's will. And you can, you can go look that up yourself. The Samaritans enter at verse 39 again. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more people to hear his message and believe. He stayed for two days. And I was just thinking about this day. How uncomfortable do you think that was for the disciples? Right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a big city where they have like China. They have different areas like Chinatown and now you're in Italian zone and now you're in, you know, all different regions where people, and they just never, you know, they're more like a stew than a melting pot. In, in, by region, but imagine yourself into a, a very Asian section of, of New York City. And they go, we want you to stay right in the heart of this for two days. None of us speak English, right? And the food's different. The culture is different. You get raw fish, you know, and somebody going, yeah, I already eat that stuff. I, not me, right? I grew up on it, so no. And, you know, so they're, it had to be uncomfortable, but even that, they're Samaritans. Right? Think back to the black woman giving a sip of her canteen. With K- oh, would you stay with us? We're all KK. Would you stay and live with? No. No. So they, they're there. I think it had to be horribly uncomfortable. Then they said to the woman, now we believe. Not just because of what you told us, but because, of what, because we've heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. All these Samaritans, literally they started church before there was a church. Before Acts even came along, there's a movement in, in the Samaritan village of people who know that Jesus is the Messiah, and they've accepted him that way. So here's the key question I want to ask you. Why did the Samaritan woman respond to Jesus? Well, he told her the truth. Absolutely. Well, he told her everything she did. Yep, that's true. But I don't think that's why he was such a deep influence. 
wrestle with that. Let me take you to another passage that gives us maybe another question and, and insight. This is near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's recorded in Luke chapter 5. And it's Jesus calling the disciples. He's going to call a guy named Levi who's a tax collector to follow him. Levi becomes Matthew and wrote the book of Matthew that's in your New Testament, the first book in your New Testament. Here's how the passage reads, verse 27 of chapter 5 of Luke. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. He is, he is doing something that gets him kicked out of the Jewish community. He's serving Rome by collecting taxes, right? He's this kind of a despised guy. Jesus goes up to him, follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. I think there was probably more to the conversation, but this is kind of the main point. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, his tax collector business, his wealth, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Now, that means he threw a party for him, invited all his friends. So if a teenager has a party for you and invites all their friends, not all your friends, all their friends, who's going to be at the party? Other teenagers. It could be a real big party. It could be, you know, it depends on how it's all handled. But, but if a tax collector throws a party for Jesus and doesn't invite all Jesus' friends but invites all his own friends, who's going to show up? Other tax collectors, prostitutes. This is kind of the crowd that he hung out Unsavory people, right? I mean, if, hey, if you, if you go to a drug dealer and say, hey, would you throw a party for me, invite all your friends, it's going to be a room full of addicts and drug sellers and suppliers. That's who's going to show up at, at the party. So Levi throws this banquet for Jesus with him as a guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests ate with them. And for some reason, the Pharisees show up. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, religious law, complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, who are, seem to be still on the site. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Right? And I think scum's a little bit they took some liberality in the translation. It could be such notorious sinners, such sinful people, right? But scum kind of captures it, right? Why do you eat and drink with such scum? And Jesus, they asked the disciples, but Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a, need a doctor, sick people do. I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent, you know what Jesus did? He, he actually answered their question. Their question was, why does Jesus eat with sinners like them? And he says, it's because it's my mission. My mission is to find people who are messed up, who need me. I'll eat with them. I'll love them. I want them to know I care about them. I want to deliver truth to them. Healthy people won't even give me the time of day, but people who know they're sick, they throw parties. That's kind of the wrong question. Why did Jesus eat with them? The, the, the other question would be, why did the scum like them want to eat with Jesus? See, I think that's a much better question. Okay, can you imagine, you know, the drug guy, hey, fellow drug dealers and addicts, come, hear Pastor Bob speak. We're having a party with Pastor Bob and he's going to talk to us. They're, who would come? None of them. This real religious guy, he's a teacher. Come and hear him. No, I don't want anything to do with that. I, those guys make me feel bad. Why did scum like them want to eat with Jesus? And then you have to go back to the 
what I told you, the foundational about all of us. People accept and reject each other at an emotional level. Why did, why did the Samaritan woman respond to Jesus? Why did Levi respond to Jesus? Why did the tax collectors and prostitutes and notorious sinners respond to Jesus? It's because he looks just like his dad. He loves just like his dad. It was so attractive. It was so attractive that they could hear truth from Jesus and accept it because they knew, as Jesus spoke, that underneath it all was this incredible love. Let me take you to a summary that Matthew gave of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 9, 35-36, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He, he cared about them. He loved them. That was his emotion, this compassion and love, because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were confused and helpless just means they were messed up. And when I read that, I think, man, is that ever good news? Jesus loves messed up people. And now there's hope for me. Because I'm not a used-to-be-messed-up guy. I'm a still kind of messed-up guy. I mean, I used to be more messed up and more stuff. Some of that's gotten better. But I'm still messed up on other stuff. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still trying to figure life out, God out, direction out. But I love that Jesus loved messed up people. That's attractive to me. It calls out to me. Jesus loves just like his dad. This is the starting place. If you want to influence somebody's life, you have to do what Jesus did. You have to start with this base of love. Before you start thinking how you want to change someone, ask yourself, how am I doing at loving them? And by the way, this gets dicey, even in families. Right? When your kids are rebelling and you're angry, but you, you want to influence them, and you're frustrated, and they're going different directions that you would, could never go. Love does not mean endorsing their behavior, but you've got to love them. Because they're going to accept and reject you at an emotional level. They can't stop from doing it. It's how we're built. It's how we operate. Remember when I asked you who's had a great influence in your life? Raise your hand if you go, that person loved me. Just, you, you know, yeah. It's universal around the room. I mean, unless it was some book you read or they didn't know you. It's kind of a more of a hero worship thing. No, if they were rubbing against your life, you know they loved you. Whom would you like to influence? When you know the answer to that question, then you know whom you need to love. That's the same. We're going to add layers to this in the future. There's more than love that's required. But without love, you can never speak into anybody's life. Not, Not to the positive. Now, there's a flip side to this message that I know some of us need to hear because we've never felt that love of God. The flip side is this. God went first. He loves us. For God so loved the world and he gave his only son. It starts with, for God so loved the world. That's the starting place to the most incredible, influential thing that's ever happened on the face of the planet. His son coming, dying for us, paying for our sins that can be one with God. God wants to influence us. And the more I know he loves me, 
the more I understand what God looks like, what his love, the more I understand God is my father, the more I open my heart up to say, okay, God, influence me. I want to become the person you made me be. I, I want to live there. I want to grow in it. Some of us have kept God at a distance. I'm going to tell you, if that's you, if you're keeping God at any distance, right, it's because you don't understand his love for you. It, and neither do I, because I keep God sometimes at a distance as well. But when we hold our hands out to God and say, no more, not, not, not so close, not so close, we don't understand his love. The starting place is love. Let's pray. God, there's probably, for every person in this room, we probably think of someone who we're concerned about, who we wish we could influence. God, would you help us to be honest with ourselves about love? And God, would you put a a true love in us that other people can sense? God, would you help us to understand your love for us? And would you influence, would you influence me more and more as I open my heart up to you? God, we know that truth is important. But it starts with love. Help us to be people who love. In Christ's name, amen. All right, thanks for coming.